Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. My simple goal this morning is to look at John 20, which we just heard read, and I want to let it help us ask and explore three questions together. And the first is, did the resurrection of Jesus happen in history? The second is, what does the resurrection of Jesus mean for today? And then the third is, what does the resurrection of Jesus mean for tomorrow? So first, we begin with the all-important question of Easter. Did Jesus of Nazareth really rise from the dead? Everything hinges on this question. No resurrection, no Christianity. If it didn't happen, we should all go home. And yet, admittedly, it is, it is a weird claim, is it not? It's such a bold claim that it invites some cross-examination, doesn't it? Now, if someone showed up on your doorstep saying that you'd won a million dollars, congratulations, you wouldn't slam the door in their face, would you? Wouldn't you at least open your mind to the possibility that they were telling the truth, and maybe you'd begin by asking a few questions? So let's do that this morning. Let's cross-examine the facts. Why do Christians believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. I want to draw your attention to a few things in John's account. First, beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 20, notice how John's account of the resurrection begins with Mary, Mary Magdalene. Now, why is that significant? Mary's a woman, which unfortunately in the ancient world is a significant mark against her credibility. For example, the Greek philosopher Celsus made his case against the resurrection this way. He said, After death, Jesus supposedly rose again and showed marks of his punishment. But who saw this, he says? A hysterical female. And perhaps some others who were deluded by the same sorcery. Now, unfortunately, Celsus's argument would have been quite compelling in the patriarchal ancient world. It would have had most hearers nodding along in agreement. Good point, Celsus. Given this context, why does John call a, you know, why doesn't he call a, a wealthy, educated, respectable man to the stand? Someone that people would in, implicitly trust. Why does John call a once raving mad Mary as his first witness? Because he isn't making things up to trick people. He's simply telling the truth and letting it have its day. Even if it is weird, and it is. Now, notice next, the whole account is bookended by Mary seeing. So the very first verse, Mary comes to the tomb and sees the stone rolled away. The very last verse, Mary concludes the account, I have seen the Lord. And then sandwiched between this first and last verse are six more seeing verbs. Everyone's seeing and witnessing things. This was precisely how ancient historians, being several thousand years shy of iPhone 14s, documented truth. There was no more reliable source in the ancient world than oral eyewitness testimony of those who were still living. And both the Gospels and Paul offer us lists of still living eyewitnesses, implicitly inviting people, track them down, knock on Mary's door, verify or falsify this claim for yourself. I know it's weird, but we saw it. We saw it. We saw it. It's a claim that is so big and so dangerous to believe that if it was a lie, that the truth would have won out. The truth would have won out. And it did. Next, notice how Mary continues to wonder who stole Jesus' body. 
until, that is, she sees Jesus face to face. So this is important to note because if you're like me, you approach the Bible with a, with a good dose of modern intellectual snobbery. Like we know better than these superstitious ancient people. And skeptics, especially in the room, might be thinking at this point, okay, yeah, 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 Mary Magdalene, a woman, an eyewitness, blah, 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 blah. But resurrection, really? What good is the word of a bunch of superstitious ancient people? But look at Mary's first reaction to the empty tomb in verse 2. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So you see, ancient Jews like Mary did not have a category for one person to be raised from dead in history any more than we do. When Mary saw the empty tomb, she reached first for the best logical explanation, just like you would, grave robbery. And then nothing less than a a conversation with the risen Jesus convinced her of the truth of the resurrection because, Celsus, she was not a superstitious, deluded, hysterical female. She was a reasonable, competent, caring, intelligent woman. Probably nothing less than this conversation with Jesus would have convinced her. And finally, notice all the odd details about the linens in verses 5 through 8. A lot of linens in there. This, this detail, it really puts the, the grave robbery theory to bed. Because when Peter arrives and enters the empty tomb, he sees, another seeing verb, but this time the seeing verb used is a different kind of seeing. He sees the linen cloths neatly folded, and the verb is theoreo, a, a theorizing. This is a studious seeing, a Sherlock Holmes-style seeing, a studying. Peter studies the evidence, and so should we. He begins to theorize. He thinks to himself, now, if someone stole the body, which is the most logical explanation, why did they take the time to unwrap the decomposing and stinking body and neatly fold the linens to the side? That's, that's strange. It's like a robber picking up after himself. None, none of his fellows, now, none of my fellow disciples would have done it. I know that because none of them would have dishonored our beloved rabbi's body by carrying it around naked and mutilated. Besides, How? Everyone knows that the the myrrh used to hide the stench of the corpse would have glued the linens to the corpse more more firmly than lead. So all told, what we have here in John 20 is is a historical account. Ancient historians treated the Gospels as historical accounts, like Josephus, for example. A historical account marked by a ruthless commitment to facts, eyewitness detail, sound reasoning, and then by these odd details that preclude grave robbery. And to this, I want to just briefly add four quick points before we look at what the resurrection means for us today. First, think about this. No body. No body. We know from history that despite a highly, highly motivated Roman and Jewish authority, they would have loved nothing more than to produce a body which would have squashed this little rebellious cult before it got off the ground. But Jesus' body was never produced. Second, martyrdom. We know from history that, that many of the disciples who claimed to meet the risen Jesus and speak with him and eat with him, were eventually killed for their eyewitness testimony of seeing the death and resurrection of Jesus. Pascal put it bluntly, very bluntly, he said, I believe witnesses who get their throats cut. And they did. It's hard to believe so many witnesses would give their lives for a hoax. Third, transformation. We know from history that the Christ follower movement went from a a tiny, terrified cult with a dead leader, a blip on the radar of history, really, to a bold and booming movement practically overnight. How? How do you explain this transformation? Japanese novelist Shusako Endo says this, If we don't believe in the resurrection, we will be forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind yet equal in force. 
And so, fourthly, we really have no other explanation. We have no explanation for the radically changed lives, for the martyrdom of the early Christian witness. And so Oxford scholar N.T. Wright concludes this. He says, no other explanations have been offered in 2,000 years of sneering skepticism that can satisfactorily account for how the tomb became empty and how the disciples came to see Jesus and how their lives and worldviews are utterly transformed. And so did the resurrection happen? Yes. That's a very brief case for it, at least. See Wright's immense study for more. Now, if you find yourself here and you're thinking, okay, 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 maybe I can't explain all these facts, but resurrections don't happen. Give me a break. They just, they just can't. I, I'm sympathetic. That's, that's the modern worldview in us. It's a weird claim. But understand this, that the first century people, like Peter and like Mary, they felt the same way. And yet they had the intellectual integrity to at least let, let the facts challenge them and ultimately change their worldview. And so do you. Are you willing to ask the hard questions? Do I? You know, if they'd only seen the empty tomb, they would have believed his body had been stolen. If they had only seen the resurrected Jesus, they could have been hallucinating maybe. But the empty tomb plus their encounters with the risen Jesus led them to believe and live and ultimately die for this truth that Christ really is risen. Well, if it did happen, what does that mean for us, for me, for you today? Again, let's look at Mary. In John 20, verse 1, Mary Magdalene comes early to the tomb. I imagine her cold exhales misting about her dark hair as her, her pace quickens, and the sun threatens to crest the horizon with new golden light. And she weaves in and around the olive trees, and her grieving mind is weaving together memories of her dead friend, Jesus. What a dear friend he was to Mary. She had once been living, of course, in a, in a tomb of her own in great darkness, but that was before she had met Jesus. The first time she had heard him speak her name, he sent seven demons flying, scattering her darkness like the dawn. And this morning, Mary is the first to arrive at the tomb. It's classic. Uh, the men are arguing about who gets there first, and the woman comes thoughtfully in the morning. <laughs> I love it. She's there first to the tomb. She stays Last, we read in verse 11, she's weeping outside the tomb, weeping until the risen Jesus comes to her and speaks her name again, Mary. Fulton Sheen says, all of heaven was in that word. He continues, Mary arrived prepared to shed tears over the grave. What she was not prepared for was to see Jesus walking on the wings of the morning. She came to the tomb expecting death, and the risen Jesus said, Mary. And she found life. She came through three days of utter hopelessness. And the risen Jesus said, Mary. And she found hope. She came to grieve a dead friend. And the risen Jesus said, Mary. And she found a risen Savior. All of heaven is in his voice, you see. Life, hope, resurrection, life. By his Spirit, Jesus is right now alive and present with us, walking on the wings of this Easter morning. That's what the resurrection means. Now, I can make an intellectual case, as I have briefly tried to do, for the resurrection, but believing it happened, that's, that's just a start. It's not just an intellectual grasping. You must seek him as Mary did, and then hear him speak your name, because his living presence, his voice, that's what will bring your dying things in you to life. The death and decay in you, that's what will resurrect it. Hearing his voice, that's what will begin turning your despair into hope. 
hearing his voice, that's what will save you from death itself. And that's what the resurrection means. Nothing less than life and hope and, and, and salvation. So seek him. I challenge you. Seek him this Easter as Mary did. Listen for him to speak your name and all of heaven will be in his voice. Finally, friends, what does the resurrection mean for tomorrow? In a confession, uh, Leo Tolstoy wrote these very bleak words. Brace yourself. He says, My question, with the age of 50, brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying deep in the soul of every man and woman. It was this, Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? A bleak question, but an honest one. Scientists tell us that entropy means the death of the universe is indeed inevitable. One scholar calls it, the uni- uh, this universal death, the ultimate limit of all hope and all freedom. And this stone, this massive stone that had been blocking the tomb of Jesus, it stood for death in all of its forms, demons, diseases, violence, dead relationships, dying dreams, on and on and on we could go. These are like great stones, seemingly immovable, inevitable. They trap us in in dark and hopeless tombs, emotionally, physically, spiritually. But here, at the resurrection of Christ, the stone of death is rolled away. And that's why the very first words of new creation, spoken by the resurrected Jesus, they come in the form of a question to Mary in verse 15. Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Because Jesus' resurrection means the end of death in all its forms, and therefore the end of all weeping. He goes on in, in verse 17 to point Mary forward to the story of redemption. I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. It's all part of his plan to send his Spirit and unite us, his people, to his own death, burying our sin and uniting us to his resurrection, making us new again. Mary, why are you weeping? He asks. Because he knows what his own resurrection means. It means that the promises of Revelation 21 are now not so far off. They're beginning to crest the horizon like the dawn. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Why are you weeping? C.S. Lewis once said that atheists and materialists could easily define the future like this. The The future is that period when what is now living will be dead. Atheists and materialists could define the future as that period when what is now living will be dead. But because of the resurrection... Christians define the future as that period when what is now dying will be fully alive. And those who are now weeping will be eternally rejoicing. The stone that holds us in bondage to death and weeping, it's been rolled away. So what does the resurrection mean for tomorrow? It means hope. Not not a vague pie-in-the-sky hope, but a physical hope. Jesus' bodily resurrection was a resounding affirmation of the goodness of of this material world. In God's future, this world, it will not freeze to death from entropy. It will burn with a glory and a goodness beyond the glory and goodness already present, not just in our own bodies, but in the most brilliant sunset, the most majestic peak and fertile valley. 
Christopher Watkins says that the resurrection shows God's commitment to this world, to this physical world. It's like a sculptor's commitment to a block of marble delivered to her workshop. She'll neither leave it exactly as it is, nor will she scrap it and start again, but she will and he will transform it with both caressing care and fearsome force in order to draw out its beauty and ideal form. That's the hope of the resurrection. This hope means that our mountains and our rivers and our bodies and our relationships and our loves and our art and our music, our lives, these things are not just sound and fury signifying nothing and then forgotten forever in cold death. It's all meaningful because it will be renewed and it will endure forever. It will be remembered. It won't be lost. It means that the days of prejudice and hate and poverty and hunger and anger and school shootings are numbered. It means that you and I and all of creation are God's masterpiece and he is sculpting us into something eternally beautiful. And it means that we, a resurrection-shaped people, now have reason to engage the world, not to give up, but to engage it because we're partnering, working with the grain of God's coming renewal of all things. What does the resurrection mean? It means, in the memorable words of J.I. Packer, that the victim of Calvary is now loose and at large. Seek him, like Mary did, yes, but don't seek him among the dead. He's alive. Sisters, brothers, friends, very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. Risen Lord, here you are, riding now to us on the wings of this Easter morning. Would you indeed open our our ears, our hearts, to hear you speak our names. Fill us, as you did Mary, with your hope, with your life, with your great, great love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.